you think about what behavioral science is, it is thousands upon thousands of uh, researchers running studies looking into what actually changes behavior. Mm-hmm. Now, I would struggle to think of a more relevant topic if you work in a retailer. Good morning and welcome to the Innovate podcast. We're delighted to have Richard Shotton, uh, behavioural scientist extraordinaire, uh, as our guest uh, this morning. Uh, Richard is the author of The Choice Factory, which is a book that has influenced um, me personally and a number of things here at uh, at Viper in terms of how we uh, consider behavioural science, how we apply it to the field of uh, product uh, innovation. And uh, yeah, delighted to be talking to Richard today. So Richard, uh, Richard, welcome. Oh, very nice to see you again. Um, Richard, uh, just to start with, tell, tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself in terms of your background and how you got into behavioural science, first of all. Ooh, okay, so background's been working in marketing um, and in terms of how I got into behavioural science, back in 2004, I think it was, uh, I was working on a pitch for, it's not a pitch, a project for the NHS um, and I happened to be reading Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point, at the same time. At the back of that book, there's just a a page or two on a 1960s psychology experiment by two American psychologists called Latin and Darling. And in it, they come up with an idea called the bystander effect. So essentially, their experiments show that if you ask loads of people for help, there is a diffusion of responsibility. If you want to get someone to help you, better to ask an individual. So read that experiment and I thought, well, wait a minute, this is really applicable to the challenge we have at hand. At the time, we were trying to encourage people to donate blood and the standard tactics go out and say, blood stocks in England and Wales are low, please donate. But according to Latin and Dali, we'd be victims of the bystander effect. We're asking everyone to help. So the chances are most people think, well, I'm going to leave it up to my neighbour. Why should I go through the pain and hassle of donating? Right. I spoke to the creative agency told them about this experiment and made a very simple suggestion said look why don't we stop saying blood socks are low in england please donate why don't we tailor that message to wherever the audience lives so if you're in basildon you might see blood stocks low in basildon please donate now it's a very crude application very simple application nothing clever or creative about it but what was interesting for me was the the performance of those ads went up by about 10 percent. so cost per donation dropped by about right. 10%. And when that happened, I kind of thought, well, okay, this one experiment was super useful, but what about all the others out there? And what I've been doing ever since, really, is trying to take findings from academia, well-known ones or lesser-known ones, and think, well, how could you apply this experiment that's been run in robust conditions? How can you apply it to a sales and marketing challenge? And yeah, that was 2004, and essentially haven't, haven't looked back since. I've uh, been hooked on the topic ever since. How interesting. Yeah, I, I find the topic fascinating myself. And I guess in, you know, in, our, in our world, we're trying to uh, figure out how we apply those that, that, that research to the world of product innovation, which is yeah, what we're going yeah, to be discussing uh, today. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, my background is marketing, but, but the experiments aren't initially run for marketers. They are run to understand what genuinely motivates people, how you can effectively yeah. change behavior. 
So in the same way a marketer wants to change behavior, I think it's exactly the same set of principles that just, you can just apply them in a very different way if you're interested in product innovation. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so um, in every episode of the uh, Innovate podcast, we like yeah. to start fairly gently and just dig into um, a little bit about you before we kind of get into the, uh, the main topic. So four or five rapid fire questions, um, just so the listeners kind of understand a little bit more about uh, Richard. Um, so, first of all, what's your favourite town or city in the UK for food? Uh, I'd have to say London. So, I live in South London, and okay. I think the sheer scale of the place means that you know, whatever cuisine you're interested in, there's always something out there. So, yeah, I think London for its sheer variety. Yes. I, yeah. I, I, I live there. To say where are my least favourite places currently? <laughs> uh, I went on holiday to Oban this year. Uh, absolutely beautiful part of the world, but I right. had the worst uh, 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 sickness after eating, oh, no. eating shellfish. So I think oh, currently no. London's top, <laughs> Oven, Oven is my least favourite. <laughs> yeah. um, so what, what would your death row meal be? And I'm guessing it wouldn't be shellfish from... <laughs> well, okay. yeah, it might be a way of getting out of it. Uh, something very, 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 very slow cooked. Yeah, I'd, uh, I'd try and think yeah. of some kind of weasel way out of... Uh, uh, out of it, happening to lay this as much as possible. Yeah. <laughs> um, and what what would you say to a, a young, uh, I don't know, academic researcher, executive looking to get into behavioural science as a discipline or, or academic subject? How would you kind of sell it to people uh, looking to uh, build their career there? Okay, so I would argue that, especially if you're going to apply this practically, which is where my uh, experience is, I would argue, firstly, this is a topic worth getting into because it's phenomenally relevant. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Marketers, product innovators, businesses are trying to change people's behavior. So everyone is in the business of behavior change. If you learn this skill, you will have a very valuable uh, set of knowledge that you can then apply in business. Yeah, for sure. And I would argue, you know, normally if that's the case, there is um, an oversupply of people who already know about it. But because behavioural science has only, I think, become of mass interest reasonably recently, <clears throat> if you're starting out in your career, it's actually wonderful. Now, if you get four or five years under your belt, you'll know as much as, as, as most people. Now, whereas if you go to a much more established career, now, there are lots and lots and lots of other people who've got 20, 30, 40 years experience. So wonderful combination of both being very practical, very relevant and Think you'd have you you have quite a unique skill set if you, you um, spend your time wisely right is, is there an increasing amount of, of young people studying behavioral science at university where it's different yes i mean it's only been a, a topic of that you could study at university reasonably recently there's quite a few masters right. programs now yeah i've got to be a little bit cautious though in that i would always argue behavioral science is essentially a, a continuation of applied psychology so I think if you're a behavioural scientist, okay. you should be drawing on studies that go all the way back to the 1890s. But this attempt to apply it in business, attempt to apply it, especially well, marketing, is much, is much more recent. Okay. And, and it's probably worth, we can't make the assumption that all of the listeners to this podcast know, let's say, anything about behavioural science. Just the, the yeah. very kind of basic concepts you've you know, as, as I describe them, which is probably quite badly, you've got system one uh, thinking and system two thinking. Just, just describe those two uh, yeah, ways so, so, as a kind of brain. Yeah, I'm going to try and 
describe behavioral science in a, a sentence, I would essentially say it's the study of how people actually behave rather than how they claim to behave. Mm-hmm. And if there is a broad theme to this topic, it's that people are overwhelmed with decisions during the day. Mm-hmm. So they don't have the time or the energy or the wherewithal to work those decisions in a fully considered way. And instead, they rely on what psychologists call heuristics or what we might just call quick rules of thumb to make decisions yeah. in a fast way. So the argument is that people are cognitive misers, that thinking is effortful, it's energy intensive, and therefore we try and, and ration it. One of the ways we ration it is using these quick rules of thumb for speedy decision making. Now, those rules of thumb are prone to biases. And if we're aware of those biases, when we're designing our products and we're designing our communications, we can essentially work with human nature rather than against it. So right. Okay. One example, one of these heuristics is an idea called social proof. You know, we tend to copy what others do. So if you tell people or make your product appear like it's popular, it will become become more popular still. Okay. That's one of the insights. It's very robust, got lots of evidence behind it. Certainly practical marketing, uh, product innovation implications. Um, and there are literally thousands of these studies out there. So you, know, you can just need to match the right studies, the right challenge you have in front of you. Okay. So applying that to the the, the world of, of product innovation and, and i guess getting into the kind of the the meteor topics for for today um you know do, do you see much evidence of, of behavioral science being applied to to product innovation or do you think those two applications are pretty nascent in the in their their combination oh, was, oh I, I, absolutely um i mean i think it may be the classic example that people might be familiar with but i think it's a really good example of showing a behavioral insight in a piece of product design is Nespresso. So there's a principle known as price relativity, which is essentially the idea that when people weigh up prices, they don't do it in an absolute sense. They do it in a comparative sense. So nothing is good or bad value. It's only good or bad value when it's compared to something else. Now, that principle, I think, has been applied amazingly by Nespresso and many, many other brands, but Nespresso is probably the best. You could argue that if a lesser team than Nestle had designed the product, what they probably would have done was stick those coffee granules into kilo bags and sold them on the shelves of Sainsbury's. Now, if they'd done that, and they let's say they sold it at the same per gram price they do today, a kilo of Nespresso is about £100, give or take a bit. Right. Now, a £100 bag of coffee, if you came across that in Sainsbury's, there's no way you know, you're going to ignore a £15 bag of Dow Egberts and take that home. You would feel morally reprehensible probably feel absolute ripoff yeah but what they did of course was not sell their product in that manner they sold it in pods a pod gives you a cup size serving of coffee uh, and once you see a cup size serving your natural comparison set changes it's no longer dow egbert's or cafe direct it's no longer other bags of roast and ground coffee when you think of cups of coffee the comparison set is starbucks or cafe nero so suddenly the 60 or 70 pence that Nespresso want for a pot of coffee looks like it's amazing value compared to the three pounds that Starbucks want for a flat white. Yeah. But 70 pence for a pod, 100 pounds for a bag, it's exactly the same per gram price. But one feels like a complete ripoff. One feels like uh, an absolute bargain. Yeah. 
that to me is a brilliant and creative use of a very well-known psychological bias. And you could argue Nespresso made billions of pounds from, from that, uh, um, that tactic. So yeah, I do yeah. think uh, product innovators, product designers will be harnessing these biases. Um, some of it will be actively and purposefully, and they'll go out and look for um, experiments that can, that can help them. Other yeah. times though, I think if someone is a very good creative, very good designer, they're often remarkably well attuned to how people behave. And it might be that they have just noticed these ideas in their dealings with people, you know, and not seen the uh, academic evidence. You know? And often practitioners get to some of these ideas before the academics do. Right. So okay. there's an amazing set of experiments called the Prattfall effect from, from Elliot Aronson. So it's essentially this idea that we prefer people or products who have a flaw. And he ran his first experiment to this idea 1966. Mm -hmm. Back in 1959, the creative director Bill Birnbach came up with this quote, a small admission gains a large acceptance. And what he meant by that was if you tell people a problem with your product, they'll often believe your other claims much, much more. And he, or at least right. his agency, put that into practice with things like VW, you know, ugly is only skin deep, America's slowest fastback. Uh, right. or Avis 1962, uh, we're number two, so we try harder. Yeah. They were applying this idea of the pratfall effect, admitting a flaw to great, gain greater believability six, seven years before the academic had ever published right. his, his data. So yeah, I think there will be designers using these ideas, either absolutely and directly inspired by behavioral science, or the best designers, I think, will know many of these ideas intuitively. Yeah. I find the Nespresso example very powerful. We, we, we were doing some behavioural science um, research right at the start of the Viper journey, so you know, probably seven or eight years ago now. And, and, and the academic that was advising us at the time, he, he talked constantly about context matters. So, you know, people's behaviour um, in response to, you know, kind of similar products, whatever it might be, can, can be completely different in, in very different contexts. And, and as you say, you, you're very happy to pay three pounds now for a, for a coffee in, in Starbucks. Whereas if that same price ratio was applied in Tesco when you were buying your, your jar of instant coffee, it, it would it would be ludicrous and no one would be, yeah, no one would absolutely. go anywhere near it. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, sorry, go on. It, it's effectively the same thing in a different, in different packaging. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, although I'm not sure if Starbucks would like to compare to instant coffee, but maybe we no, to compare no. to Rotary Ground, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the one thing that's probably worth stressing is I think that Nespresso Example is quite well known, and I wouldn't want people to think it's just Nespresso that does it. You know, if you go around the supermarket, you start to see this again and again and again. I think the more recent example of someone who's applied this idea is uh, Seedlet. So this is the 25 quid a bottle stuff, uh, non-alcoholic, you mix it with tonic, you've got a non-alcoholic version of uh, a gin and tonic. Yeah. Now, everything they do with that brand is about making the comparison set in people's minds craft gins so you look at the bottle and it's got this wonderful kind of victoriana design it looks like a craft gin it's in a gin shaped bottle in the supermarket it's sighted very close to the gins often you know the non-alcoholic spirit section they refer to it as a distilled non-alcoholic spirit 
everything is about trying to make the comparison set crotchets. So when they go out and charge £25, people think, okay, well, I would pay £30 for a crotchet. I'm getting a £5 discount. That's you know, fairish. It doesn't have any alcohol collateral. And people buy this stuff. But you could easily imagine a hypothetical world in which someone had created this spirit, um, but they decided, okay, well, or, super, or Tesco's had told them, no, we're putting this stuff in the cordial aisle. And maybe it was sold in a plastic bottle, day glow colours, and it's between Robinson's and Ribena. Yeah. Even if this stuff tastes like the nectar of the gods, even if it was absolutely amazing in terms of its taste, there is no way in that hypothetical world that anyone would spend more than five or six pounds on it. Because their benchmark comparison price would be, you know, a three pound bottle of Ribena. Now, mm-hmm. If it tasted amazing, they might pay double that amount, but they're not going to pay 10 times the amount because it would transgress fairness laws. So absolutely, you've got examples like Nespresso, which made billions, but Seedlip, I'd say, is a smaller, you know, they're not sure they made millions out of this, but a smaller example of the same principle. Now shift your comparison set and you can shift people's willingness to pay by absolute orders of magnitude. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So yeah. for the lesson for retailers there, if they want to add more value into particular categories that might have seen price deflation over sustained period of time is effectively kind of reframe it and recreate it and and you know physically move it in the yeah it could be through design sighting just how you introduce the product to people um and i've so i've kind of talked about case studies so far and that's always a little bit dodgy because it's not they're not running academic experiments they are um, launching a product and there are often multiple variables that, that change at the same time but I did an experiment with um, King Cobra. I don't know if it's still around. This was about seven or eight years I did this. But if people haven't seen it, it's like Cobra Lager, but in a bigger bottle. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's 750ml bottle, and I think it was about 7 or 8%. And we got people to try this beer alongside other beers. And we tried a little bit of subterfuge. We didn't tell them why we were uh, running the experiment. They thought they were just rating various different beers and comparing the the quality of the, of, the, of the taste. And what we found, I can't remember the exact numbers, but let's say people were prepared to pay three pounds for this beer when we asked them you know, what, the, what they thought it was worth. Yeah. Next group of people, exactly the same setup, range of different drinks, tasting them all, saying how much they're prepared to pay, how much they like the taste. But this time the King Cobra was served alongside bottles of wine. And what we found was when people gave their, this is a different group of people, when that different group responded on how good value they thought, or what they were prepared to pay for King Cobra, the average answer was saying like four pounds. What we think is happening here is by changing the reference set, the benchmark people are prepared to pay changes. So when it's served with wines, people think at the time they thought five was a fair amount to pay for a wine. They recognise King Cobra is not as strong. It's a beer after all. So they reduced down. But they don't reduce it that much, just go to about four pounds. Yep. Whereas when people had the Cobra served with beer, you know, maybe the price they're prepared to pay a bottle is two quid. Yep. They recognise King Cobra is in a bigger bottle, it's more alcoholic, so they're prepared to pay more. They adjust upwards to about three pounds. But the key point is people take that benchmark and it affects their later estimations. They use it as a anchor, they adjust from that anchor, but they tend to not adjust far enough. 
So even when you strip back all the other variables, you just focus on this context of consumption, we can see in very controlled circumstances, this idea of price relativity happening. It's very interesting. So you've referenced two or three biases so far, things like anchoring and, and framing and relativity. If, if, um, if you were kind of training or, or mentoring a product developer on, on behavioral science, so someone who's spending their, their days you know, developing product innovation and thinking about products to bring to market, what would the two or three kind of biases that you would really try to ingrain in them be yeah. and, and and why i guess and what what's the relevance to innovation yeah of course of course so discuss price relativity um i only just touched on social proof and that that might not at first glance look like it's uh relevant for a product design but i think it definitely is um if people aren't familiar with this uh, idea uh, we mentioned earlier that it's essentially a description of the fact that people are a herd species you know we copy what others do mm-hmm. now there's lots of academic evidence for this um, one study, for example, by Keyes Kaiser in the University of Groningen, he finds an alleyway where there are lots of bikes parked in Holland, and he puts flyers over the handlebars, and he monitors whether people put the rubbish in the bin or they just chuck it on the ground. Now, what's quite interesting is in his experiment, he sets up two different scenarios. First scenario, before he puts the flyers on the bikes, he cleans the alleyway. So he makes it look as if most people are responsibly putting their litter in the bin. Right. And I'm trying to remember back. I think, let's say, it's roughly, this will be within 5%, 30% of people in that scenario chuck their litter on the floor. Next scenario, a different group of people, different time, he purposely makes the alleyway look messy, spray some graffiti on the walls, chuck some litter on the floor. Um, In that scenario, he set up a social norm where it looks like most people litter. And about 60% of people litter in this scenario. So depending on what we think most other people are doing, we're seeing this doubling in terms of littering. If it looks like the normal behavior, lots of people do it. If it looks like few people um, are littering, most people don't. So a subtle cue about the popularity of a uh, behavior could change how likely people are to do it. Okay. Is, is that what some of the, the beauty brands would, would do on their advertising where they say nine out of 10? Oh, yeah. So that to me would be a literal application. If you go out and you, you say, we're Britain's most popular lager, uh, nine out of 10 customers recommend it. Um, yeah. We've got 10,000 five-star reviews. That's literal applications to social media and marketers right. do that quite a lot maybe not as much as they should do but they do it quite a lot i think you can take that underlying principle though and apply it to product design mm-hmm. and the uh, the application should be how can you make your product look as popular as possible often products when they are used they are invisible no one notices i think the job of a product innovator is to think how can we make our product look much more become much more visible mm-hmm. so recent recent ish example from britain uh, fintech sector uh, someone applying this is monzo yeah think back to a time you've been in a cafe you probably don't notice most people getting out their debit card or credit card mm-hmm. you know, if someone gets out an hsbc card it's completely interchangeable with a lloyd's or a barclays one from a distance you, yep. you wouldn't notice they're all 
bland uh, pastel colors. So for those brands, lots of people actually use them. But what actually happens doesn't matter. It's, it's the perception of popularity that matters. You, you don't notice that, that behavior. Compare that with Monzo. Now, they have made their card utterly unmissable. It is this bright, bright pink card. Uh, they call it hot coral. If right. anyone gets out a Monzo card in the queue, you're going to notice your eyes are attracted to that ridiculously yeah. day glow color. So they have made a behavior that most competitors allow to be invisible. They've made it visible. Now, they look much more popular than they are, and that will set in train a virtuous circle of social proof. So Monzo have used distinctive colors, but there are lots of other ways to appear more popular than you are. Now, you've got to think, for your product, do as many people as possible know the product is being used? How can you make usage um, noticeable? Because if you, the default is often that it's, that it's hidden away. So yes, I think social proof is an absolute must for any uh, product innovator. How can you make your product appear more popular than it actually is? Okay. The, the other one, um, you mentioned a couple. Um, one other area might be worth thinking about is not just creating a desire to use the product, but creating a associated moment for the product use. Right. Um, there's an idea that psychologists have called the intention to action gap. If you just motivate people to want to do something, it's not particularly effective. And many of us are motivated to exercise, to stop smoking, to eat healthily very few of us actually do it if you just increase motivation it doesn't have a huge effect on actual behavior change so psychologists call this the intention to action gap now there are a few experiments which suggest one way around that is to combine motivation with a trigger moment so a time a place or a mood in which people associate with your product mm -hmm. so there's a lovely study by sarah milne at the university of bath in which he shows if you motivate people to want to exercise, um, about 35% of the people in her experiment did so, maybe 38 actually. Right. If you motivate them and get them to, to say when, where, or with whom they're gonna exercise, in her study back in 2002, I think 91% of people uh, exercised at least once. Right. What she argued is motivation is just kind of nebulous and vague what you do is if you attach a behavior like exercise to a particular time say tuesday afternoons when that time comes around that that acts as a trigger and it converts the vague desire into concrete action right so a lot of the academic studies have been done on things like eating healthily or exercising but this principle can be applied commercially so I would argue champagne is, is brilliant at doing this. It's not just a wonderful tasting uh, alcoholic drink. It's one that has a massive cultural association with a particular moment. Celebration equals champagne. Yeah. And I would argue their probably unprecedented success has been driven not just by the you know, amazing quality of the product. It's also the fact that it has such a strong association with a particular moment. So yes make your product desirable but if you just rely on that i think it's a bit of a gamble what you really want to do is attach your product to a particular time place or, or, or mood 
Right. Okay. And and I guess to the 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 opposite of that would be brands that try to own too many different occasions, and they kind of they lose the ownership of any any individual one. Yeah, they're very, yeah, very good point. I think there's probably uh, more humility needed in marketing. The change fields behaviour is bloody hard. Yeah, yeah. Um, better to successfully associate yourself with you know, a particular moment rather than try and do everything. So, you know, Champagne have shown, you know, you can build a multi-billion pound business by a very strong association with one particular moment. Yeah. And the moment doesn't come around that often. Yeah. So when... when... As a, as a behavioural scientist, when you when you see consumers in in um, in supermarkets and in, in convenience stores, um, what what are you witnessing? I mean, one one of the, the challenges that that I've always seen is the power of habit. I don't know if that you would kind of classify that as a heuristic as a behavioural scientist, but try, people buy very similar things over and over again because I guess it's the it's the set of decisions with the least friction. It's the it's the easiest thing. You buy a particular type of cheddar, a particular flavour of yogurt, and you can you can go around the supermarket on almost autopilot so yeah you know how do kind of how would a brand break that how would a new product get cut through yeah so um you're absolutely right around habits being linked with behavioral science and i think it's if we went back to this original insight from behavioral science which is people don't have the time to work all their decisions yeah. over it fully thought through about it yeah if you weighed up every decision you never leave the house in the morning if you thought about how, what what means of transport am i get to work what type of breakfast am I have? how am i going to clean myself and you just do the same thing again and again until a disruptive force destabilizes those habits so yeah it habits like an extreme version of these rules of thumb or, or, or heuristics um there's an awful lot of research into habits um couple of interesting areas Firstly, in terms of disrupting existing habits, one of the most interesting findings is that there are predictable moments when habits are weakened. So right. there's an idea, for example, from Catherine Milkman, uh, who's at Wharton. She says, one of the biggest drivers of human behavior is our desire to be consistent with our past selves. Many cultures have this negative terminology, negative language about inconsistent people. So she says there is an opportunity to break from the shackles of consistency at the start of new time periods. When we go into a new time period, our linkage with our past self is weakened slightly and we're more open to change. Right. Now, that's a logical argument. The great thing about behavioral science, though, is nothing is ever argued from logic alone. Everything has to be proved experimentally. So she shows uh, by looking at a series of found data sets that this insight holds. So she looks at Google search terms around things like um, dieting or quitting smoking, yep. volume of these terms. She looks at gym registration data. She looks at a website called Stick, where people make public pledges to change their behavior. And for each of these uh, data sets, she sees a pronounced spike at the start of new time periods. So very simple application of that is if you want to change someone's behavior, focus your efforts beginning of the year, beginning of the month, beginning of the week, after those birthdays. Okay. after they've come back from holiday. You know, habits are slightly degraded at those moments. The, they're easier to change. Right. Um, I've similar around this, but looked at like bigger disruptions in people's lives. And I've shown that if someone undergoes what I'd call a life event, divorce, marriage, move house, have a baby, they are about two and a half times more likely to try new brands, even in completely unrelated 
categories. Right. So, okay. yeah, absolutely. There are behavioral science experiments that identify when you can try and disrupt habits. And then there's probably an even body, bigger body of work that talks about um, how you can recreate those habits positively. And I think some of those steps to recreate habits can be brought into, into product design. Right, okay. So for example, the beginning of the week, people would be more, not likely, but more, more open to kind of buying healthier products, for example, or, or exercising. Oh, so, so, uh, so it extends beyond that. So um, there, so there is yeah, absolutely true, but also trying new lagers, trying new gambling products, trying new sin goods. It's right. not just about healthiness. It's the idea that most of the time we're an autopilot. Yeah, you know, we just do the same things again and again. These moments are times when that autopilot is weakened. So any product trying to change behavior should prioritize prioritize those moments. Yeah. Okay. Um, and do, from a behavioural science perspective, I've, I've got this hypothesis that you know that, that there could be a role, a formal role for behavioural scientists within within retailers, within manufacturers, in terms of kind of product design. Do you, do you think it, it would be possible to build almost not the perfect product because that's too cliche, but a very very strong performance product that had as many of the relevant kind of behavioural uh, biases baked in? Um, yeah, so, so, okay, so I mean, there's two elements there. There's can behavioral science be applied to improve product design? Absolutely, yep. yes. And then the second bit of would the perfect product have lots and lots of uh, biases involved? And that I'm not so sure about. So, on the first point, you know, I think if you think about what behavioral science is, it is thousands upon thousands of uh, researchers running studies looking into what actually changes behavior. Mm -hmm. Now, I would struggle to think of a more relevant topic if you work in a retailer. Literally, your whole job is trying to get people to change their behavior. Pick your shop yeah. over someone else's, buy more of your stuff, pay a price premium. And literally, there are thousands of studies out there already that someone else has funded uh, that have been done by very credible academic researchers that are done by a neutral group of people. They're literally sitting there on the, on the shelves of libraries. All you have to do is, as a very first step, is take those findings and you know, build on them and apply them to how you uh, approach um, uh, your, your you know, dealings with consumers. So right, okay. I, I think it's almost insane that more people aren't uh, applying this. And the great thing is if you're a retailer, I'm not saying you should take a study um, run on littering and say, this is definitely going to work when I'm trying to sell beer. Mm -hmm. But you should take the academic experiment as a hypothesis with a reasonable degree yep. of proof around it, and then use your store as a way of, of testing to see if it works in your particular category. Right? Yep. Okay. Take six stores and apply the bias. Take six stores and don't apply the bias and then see what the difference in, in performance is. Now, they've got this giant laboratory. Why not, why not use it? So yeah, absolutely, if you're a retailer, you should certainly be applying behavioral science. 
whether that means you have an individual who's responsible, you know, that's one route. You might want to bring in the external experts. Um, you might want to create a culture where everyone in your company owns that paper. So, you know, each of those has their, their strengths and weaknesses. So, mm -hmm. but definitely, 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 you should be applying it. The second um, point you mentioned there about can you create a perfect product by layering on bias after bias after bias? Yeah. I'm a little bit more skeptical about that. Uh, and in my mind, if anyone's a Simpsons fan, I've got this image of Homer's perfect car where he kind of, you know, adds <laughs> on lots of different elements all to make it as, as good as possible. It's, it's kind of a, a bit of a flop. So that's, that's kind of my uh, buzzing alarm back of my head. Um, but what I would say is I'm not sure you need to add on multiple biases. You could look at product after product and see one really powerful application of a single bias mm -hmm. has been crucial in building that brand. So take something like uh, cough syrup. Um, mm -hmm. There are um, examples of brands around the world where they have um, drawn attention to the floor of that product. And this is true. So the brand I'm thinking about is, is Buckley's cough syrup. Uh, but it can equally be said for TCP or Listerine. Mm -hmm. Each of those products at different times in their product life cycle have drawn attention to their foul taste, um, you know, which is essentially a, a flaw. We mentioned earlier this study from Elliot Aronson. What he showed was if you admit a flaw as a brand, yep. you tend to become more appealing. Firstly, you become more believable. But secondly, if you choose the right flaw, it often has a mirror strength. So what those brands, Listerine, Buckley's and TCP have done is draw attention to how foul they taste. And what that insinuates in people's mind is that, well, if it tastes that bad, it must be bloody potent. It must be really effective. If something to taste yeah. that bad, it must be hugely effective in, in, in solving the problem. So that I think has been done by relentlessly pursuing a single bias and they've made very powerful um products mm -hmm. if they tried i think to layer on bias after bias there might be some you know attenuation that effect. right okay. Um, okay and if people aren't aware of buckley's by the way it's uh, the number one selling cough syrup in, in canada it's this it was a family-owned brand and built for dominance of the market by uh, some wonderfully creative uh, around emphasizing its bad taste so they've got some you know, tagline, it tastes awful and it works. Um, things like uh, the largest bottle we sell is 250 milliliters. Any more would be uh, cruel. And they draw massive attention to their right. foul taste and then reap the reap the benefits. Okay. So trying to layer on too many biases would be a, a bit like, um, you know, trying to make too many positive claims about a product. If you've got a list of 11 or 12 positive claims, a consumer, they they just can't. Yeah, see the yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. I think I think you would have some um, kind of backfire effects occurring. So there's, there's, I mean, there is a lovely set of studies by a psychologist called Zhang into what's called the gold dilution effect. Right. You know, recruits a great group of people, great large group of people, and gives them uh, an argument about why exercise is amazing. Mm -hmm. First group just see text on the fact that if you go out and jog, it's amazing for your heart health. Right. She, she, she essentially, in her own mind, categorizes this as a, as a strong um, reason to exercise. Next group, she gives them exactly the same text about jogging being great for heart health, but she adds on another bit, which is jogging is also great for your bone density. 
grow. And she argues, you know, this is a kind of mediocre reason to exercise. So what she's essentially given people is one great reason to exercise, other people a great reason to exercise and a mediocre reason. Mm-hmm. What she finds is when she asks people later on, how good is jogging for your heart health? People who just heard the single argument believe it's better than those who heard the two arguments. Right. Okay. Her point is arguments are averaging rather than additive. You know, if we you know, crudely said the, the heart health argument was a nine out of 10 reason to exercise and the uh, bone density was a seven out of 10 reason to exercise. You know, in that second scenario, you don't get a 16 um, points of um, persuasion. You get what, nine plus seven, eight uh, points. Yeah. You reduce the impact of, of, of those strong arguments by adding on right. mediocre ones. So, yeah, I, th- I think you're right. If you try and be all things to all people, it's unbelievable and it undermines your, your core strength. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, we, we, we're in a, you know, a challenging time now around the cost of living crisis. There, there would be an easy argument to say that product innovation is likely to suffer over the next year as, as consumers focus exclusively on price. I mean, what, what are you seeing at the moment from a behavioural perspective that's happening in terms of the choices that consumers are, uh, are making? I'd say, for, well, from a behavioural science perspective, one of the big areas where there's lots of research done is around how to reduce price sensitivity. So right. we talked about, Espresso have essentially done that, you know, they their benchmark is uh, Starbucks rather than roasting ground, so they can charge a massive massive premium. And that I think becomes more powerful. You know, you, 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 at least if your benchmark is a three pounds per cup, you've got quite a lot of opportunity to discount before you get down to, to unprofitable levels. Yeah, and that's one study, but there are literally thousands of studies into reducing price sensitivity, which brands should be applying. If people are going more price sensitive, you've got to start applying this stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you're a restaurant, there's work from Sybil Yang in America, which shows if you take the dollar sign off the menu, so burger, $8, if you take the yeah. dollar sign off, it just says burger, 8 yeah, people become 8% less price sensitive. Oh, interesting. The great All thing right. with that insight is there's no cost to the brand. You've got to create menus. You've got to put the price on. You yeah. might as well do it in a way that works with human nature rather than against it. Yeah. Um, there are all sorts of studies. There's this idea called the rule of 100, for example, um, that Gonzalez at, uh, from, I think it's E-G-A-D-E, I don't know how to pronounce it, E-G-A-D, School of Business right. Method. Uh, she shows that how you display a promotion should vary according to your original price. So if you're a 200 pound product, it's better to say 20 pounds off rather than 10% off. But if you're a 10 pound product, it's better say, to say um, 20% off rather than two pounds off. Right, people okay. react almost naively to numbers. They look at the headline figure rather than what that number represents. Right, so okay. use the largest possible number, and that can be an absolute amount, can be a percentage, but basically which one works best changes once you're past this threshold of 100 pounds right, so okay. lots and lots of different studies talk about how to reduce price sensitivity and i would argue with the cost of living crisis these become more important for, for brands to be applied yeah, yeah no doubt 
no, no doubt. Um, and then I, I guess kind of um, final, you know, final topic to discuss. The um, what, what do you see that the, the the innovation sector does does really well that maybe kind of consumers don't understand externally or is not shouted about um, externally? Yeah, I mean, I think keeping about consumers will understand very little of it. I mean, any yeah. pr product in the supermarket um, represents. You know, a, a tiny tiny importance to every consumer so i think we overestimate how much people think of our brand um yeah for sure and that does create problems because it if we think people think lots about our brands we assume their attention that's a massive danger and then we worry about causing offense or not being liked by people mm -hmm. arguably the much bigger danger is not being noticed at all and, and complete apathy yeah so sure. i think i'd be very cautious about ever thinking that consumers put much thought at all into their toilet roll or uh, toothpaste or um you know liver spread or whatever you're, you're, you're buying yeah yeah but i think this the cost of living crisis is a huge opportunity for private label because this this is the, historically the time when uh, retailer owned brands kind of can can flourish as people are making you know often quite quite blunt price choices between the the brand that is two pounds and the private label equivalent that might be a pound 50 uh, for example so there's a there's a big opportunity yeah, yes. for our own brand yeah absolutely um and then final question uh, richard what, what's the best product launch you've seen in the in the last last year or so oh okay uh great question so um maybe from a behavioral science perspective and it's potentially more than a year ago i think my idea of time is uh is is, uh, is, is faulty i do love uh, i've mentioned this before but i love wordle as a, as a as a product innovation right and i think there are points about wordle that can definitely be applied by products so the reason i think Wordle's amazing is what many people don't know is this game was launched in 2013. so a guy called josh wardle created it launches this product and essentially you've got six goes to guess a five letter word when he launches it um he lets people play as many games as they want every day and it's a complete flop 30 people are playing on a daily basis right so he pulls it eventually 2020 he goes through lockdown in new york and he becomes addicted to the new york times crossword and he begins to wonder why he loves this cryptic crossword so much and he gets to the point where he thinks well actually i think i love it because i'm always left wanting more as soon as i finish the crossword right. um, i have to wait a bit can't satisfy my desire i've got to wait till tomorrow when the new york times release the next one so he thinks it's this uh, scarcity this lack of um option to fulfill your needs which which makes it appealing so he goes back to Wordle, recodes it, and now releases yeah. it, and you can only play one game per day. Right. And it's that sense. And he's, he's very specific about this is the reason what he wants to create. He wants to create this guest. He says, I want Wordle to be like a delicacy. I want it to be like a croissant that you try occasionally, not something that you sate yourself on again and again. And it's only when he introduces this false level of scarcity that sales well, not sales sorry, but the usage take off you know got a million right. people buying it a day now now that principle of scarcity has been shown in controlled circumstances 
there's a psychologist called Stephen Wirtshaw at the University of Virginia who ran a lovely study where uh, sometimes he serves people a glass jar full of 10 cookies and they rate those cookies as so-so. Other times he serves them a glass, other, he serves different groups of people a glass jar with just two cookies in. So right. even though the cookies are exactly the same, when they are in that limited supply, ratings of the cookie go up considerably, mm-hmm. uh, 10, 11%. So it's not just this case that they've worded, but there's experimental evidence that shows scarcity is a powerful determinant of the appeal of products. We want what we can't have. Right, okay. Now that you can take to product design. You know. Yeah. Have risk cream egg, only buy it a few months a year. Uh, yeah. Phenomenally popular product. When they launched that, uh, um, it was had this their time scarcity. They, in the 80s, removed any time restrictions. You could buy it all year round. And Cadbury saw the sales drop. They put that scarcity back on. Um, McRib, you know, launched early 80s, uh, complete flop. McDonald's decides to stop selling it. A few people complain. They say they absolutely love it. So they decide to bring it back, but just for a very limited time, you know, right. limited uh, time you could buy it. When they introduce that scarcity element, that's when sales take off. Literally, the product was unpopular when it was a permanent item to the menu, when it just comes and goes, huge popularity. Right. That's These scarcity you can see again and again and again with products. You know, you look at loads of tech products, Gmail, invite only skin with Facebook, invite only, Spotify, yeah. invite only. Huge number of products have, have embedded scarcity to generate that, that appeal, either at the beginning of their product lifestyle or on an ongoing basis. So yeah, I think yeah, Wordle yeah. for me is not just an amazing success, but it's got a behavioral insight of the heart that can be applied by far more, far more brands. Yeah, it feels very, as you say, very applicable to, to mass market products. I mean, that, that scarcity is used by fashion brands relatively extensively. Yeah, yeah. Collaborations now with, with people like Uniglo, Times, you know, glamorous yeah. French designer, and it, they only do 500 pieces yeah. of a few items, and, and they're gone within half a day. And then you've got brands like Supreme, which they only yeah. do limited edition runs of, of everything, and there's queues outside yeah. their stores. Yes, constantly. The Supreme so, yeah. almost have like a sadistic uh, relationship with yeah. customers. <laughs> I can yeah, believe yeah. you know, they turn the website off for four months a year. Now you have to, you know, they'll do a drop every Thursday of new clothes, 11 a.m. at the store. You have to win a raffle to get a place to go to the store. And if yeah. you don't turn up, if you don't turn up, they won't let you buy anything for the rest of that season. Yet yeah, scarcity is the absolute heart of that brand. And their popularity is to the extent that they have they sell house bricks with the word supreme on for hundreds of dollars you know they've and used this principle of scarcity to create um mental and financial value for completely anodyne products right how interesting um richard we are sadly out of time it has as always been fascinating oh uh, yeah yeah, i love it yeah thank you uh thank you uh, very much for appearing on the uh, the innovate uh, podcast um and we will no doubt catch up soon thank you richard I hope so. good to chat see you soon thank you richard